Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Commander David Brune has written 25 books on naval history and one on shipboard engineering. After 22 years on active duty and two in the Naval Reserve, this Chico State grad was a high school teacher and track coach in Chico for 10 years. Because retired Commander Brune is an avid track and field fan, he then wrote three books about competitive running. The title of the third book in his trilogy is Distant Finish. David Brune, welcome. Thank you. Now, you wrote two previous books on running in Northern California, and for people who aren't familiar with them, would you tell us, um, well, I'm wondering, when you wrote that first book, did you think, okay, this is a one time, I wrote this book, I'm done? Yeah, I thought the first book would be the only one. It's called Toe the Mark, and it's about the running dynasties at uh, Boys and Girls at Chico High during the 1970s, when during which Coach Chuck Sheely developed the the most powerful collections of boy and girl distance runners that have existed to date in the North section. And he had a girls cross country team in 1977 term, the Charlie's angels after, uh, Charles Sheely, Chuck Sheely. So, uh, I heard of Chuck Sheely many years ago, but I, it was because he was a smoke jumper. That was a whole career separate from what I learned, what a big role he played in running here in this area of Chico. Yes, and he's a legend throughout Northern California. Maybe beyond that, but certainly Northern California. Well, and he has stayed fit himself. He's very fit. Yeah, as are you. And you're, what was you, when you were in high school, you were a runner. Yes, I was. So you come from this both as as a runner yourself in high school and as a coach. Yes, as I explained in Toe the Mark, my teammate Mark Birch and I were actually on the leading edge of that dynasty. Um, our uh, our year group won four North Section cross-country championships in a row, and then the, the athletes that came after us were even better. So as I said in Toe the Mark, we'd like to think we had something to do with their success, but they were actually better athletes. My guest is retired Commander David Brune, and we are talking about his books on competitive running. So the first one is called Toe the Mark, and you featured uh, runners from Chico High. And your second book, what was the title of your second book? Stride Out. When I did the first book, there was some Chico State Wildcat information on in that and also some road racing, but I felt like there hadn't been enough attentions paid to the Wildcat, the Chico State runners, and I wanted to pay homage to them. And uh, so that's what Stride Out does. And Stride Out's a very interesting book. And in, if you read the blurb for it, part of it is the very different coaching philosophies of the coaches who were there. The men's coach had played professional football over under um, Vince Lombardi. He was a collegiate All-American in football. He came up here and was, was the coach of the men's track team and cross-country team. His brother was a world-class miler, a two-time Olympian. And... Then you had two great women coaches, Deanne Carlson, who was an international competitor. Uh, she coached at Chico State, and in 1996, she was head Olympic women's coach for the women's track team. And then she was succeeded by Cherry Sherrard, who ran in the 64 Olympic Games. So part of the story of the Wildcats is how the women coached and how Larry Burleson coached. And uh, anyway... And uh, some of the people who came to Chico State did not come on scholarship, on athletic scholarship. In fact, I remember uh, somebody who was offered a scholarship at another university turned that down because he liked Chico. Well, there were no athletic scholarships back then. So the point I made in Stride Out, in 1969, you had all these great blue chipper athletes come to Chico and they were third in the Nationals in cross-country that year. They had three All-Americans. In the Nationals. Now, repeat that. In the Nationals. Right here in Chico. And none of them, none of them had scholarships. But um, you know, having lived in Chico, Chico is both generational. I mean, you'll meet people all over the U.S. that know Chico State. But a lot of times, kids come from outside of Chico up here because dad or, or aunt or whoever came. And they come up and they fall in love with the campus the community, the park. And so that was the big draw for, for these runners. And so they, 
they came up here to a non-scholarship school in lieu, lieu of taking some money and going elsewhere, somewhere in concrete jungle. So in your first book, you covered high school runners in the 1970s. Right. And in your second book, you covered Chico State runners in the 1970s. Yes. So why did you decide to write a third book, David? Well, part of it was road racing. Road racing became really the, the running boom in the United States was in the 1970s. And it turns out that the Northern California led the nation in that running boom. So people were taken to the streets. And that was a very heady and interesting time. And Stride Out, there's a cover of the Beta Breakers, showing the Beta Breakers when there was 10,000 runners. One year, there was 50,000. So you had, in this book, Distant Finish, Professor Britt Brewer, who was a phenom, young runner at Chico Junior and Chico High, he wrote a forward for the book, and he said in there that one thing he took, that, he, that he took away from reading the draft material was amazed at the large numbers of runners that were road racing and the large numbers that were running very, very fast. And he said not only at the front of the races, but also farther back where these age group uh, competitions were playing out. So, Well, there's uh, a quote in your book that says why it was that uh, these clubs sprang up in Northern California. And so what did he say about running in Northern California? This is from the uh, North Cal uh, Distance Review Running Annual, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But there are several good reasons why clubs exist aside from the financial aspects. This was actually the North Cal Running Review president talking about the importance of the AAU. Team competition provides a means whereby each individual can feel like he is a part of something. Even if he or she is the last runner on the team, he can feel that he belongs. Here the key is not how good a runner is, but how much of a participant he is. The true strength of the club system, therefore, lies not in excellence, but in participation. Not always in running, but at least in social gatherings and other club functions. And that was a big part of it. During the 70s, um, you had high school and college competitive athletes running cross-country and track. And then during the off-season, they would often engage in road racing. But then you had other people in the community of all ages that were road racing year-round. Let me remind people that uh, that quote you're just reading is from your most recent book, your third book on running, called Distant Finish. And the author is retired commander David Brune. But now you also have a co-author in this book. Yes, Jack Lydig, who's quite a remarkable individual. He's going to be 80 years old in January. Jack grew up in the Bay Area, went away to Southern Illinois University on a track scholarship, got an undergraduate and master's degree. I don't know if it was in engineering or computer science, but when he finished, he went back to the Bay Area. And it's pretty amazing. He was working at Naval Shipyard Hunters Point doing computer programming, and he was training at a very high level and training and competing at a very high level. And he was the president of the West Valley Track Club, which became very powerful. A number of Olympians were on that club. And he put out the North, Northern California Running Review, 81 issues between 1969 and 1981. And a lot of the material on this, in this book is from the Northern California Running Review. I essentially mined his body of work. And having him as a co-author paid great dividends because when he was putting out those issues, he told me he was at a typewriter. And some of those are 20, 30 pages long. They're quite extensive. And, of course, people would send in race results, and sometimes names were spelled wrong or things were in error, which he may not have known about then, but subsequently he knows basically everything about running. So he was reading the draft material and correcting, correcting some old mistakes. And uh, So really the book you wrote, but you used material from your co-author, Jack Lydie. Yes, yes. It's so, basically his I, – I write in the preface to the book that readers of this, of this book should at some point – you know, jump up smartly and say something like <laughs> cracking good book, mate, you know, in tribute, because there is no other publication like that. There's not a publication for Southern California. I mean, the, the, the amount of work that he invested in that is remarkable. The North Cal Running Review had all kinds of, inf they covered cross country, track and field, road racing, trail racing. They had all kinds of information on meets that were coming up, results of meets, the latest on physiology ads for the latest and greatest, uh, running shoes, on and on and on and on. And, you know, nowadays if you run, you know, in Chico, for example, you go run the Bidwell Classic or you run the um, 
almond bowl runs. They're well organized, and they kind of go off without, without a hitch. Back then in road racing, it's interesting reading about these races because, for example, you might be running a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards, and 15 miles into the race, three people would take a wrong turn. The, the leaders, because there was nobody out there, or there was supposed to be a police officer, and they weren't there, and so they go the wrong way, and people farther back end up winning, and then there's race results where they talk about, well, the course was probably short or it's probably long. And I mean, they didn't have the same organization. And there's a guy that did a, um, he posted information about this book on his website. It's called something like Back in the Vest. I think he ran for Kent State and they used to wear vests or something. But anyway, he was talking, he sent me an email. He says, remember when the race leader carried the stopwatch and if somebody passed him during the race, they handed off the, the stopwatch? That was before my time, but that, that kind of gives you an idea of the early, the early beginnings of road racing. Again, my guest is historian and retired Naval Commander David Brune, and you combined your interest in history and in running to write this, essentially a history, recent history, of the 1970s runners. And you, we've talked about the fact these clubs kind of sprang up. And I was interested in the fact that there was a club in San Francisco Olympic Club founded in May of 1860. So I thought, oh, there was this club in 1860, but it was a very different kind of club. Well, that's an extraordinarily wealthy club, and there's a lot of names from uh, the history of our country um, that people would recognize that were members of that club. And one of the people that's uh, pictured on the cover of this book, Bob Darling, he ran for them. And I was curious, how did you belong to the, the Olympic Club? Were A your... club that had Mark Twain Right, in right. It. I was thinking, are your parents extraordinarily wealthy? How did you uh... run for the, for the Olympic Club? But it turns out they would recruit great high school and collegiate runners to represent them and not necessarily give a membership. Yeah, I just imagine these guys sitting around with their nose in the air, these rather snooty gentlemen, and here comes this runner, and uh, how did they get along? Well, they got along fine, and then at some point they wanted to interview him, and he said that he cut his hair, and he put on a suit, and he went in there, and they were asking questions about his, basically, social status of his family. Who are your parents? Yeah, he sort of thought he didn't measure up, but, but he found out that they weren't interested in women, Jews, or blacks. So he, yes. he, quit, he quit the Olympic Club. They did not allow, this San Francisco Olympic Club did not allow blacks, women, or Jews to be members. Right, this was in the 60s. Presumably that's long since changed. But I would think that so. That was back in the 1960s. But he decided, I don't think I want to be a member of a club like this. Correct. So you got to hand it to him yes. for standing up for that, yes. I think. So you mentioned that uh, the founder of the West Valley Track Club, and that was 1964, which is still not as early as 1860, but it's still quite early in the history of running in the United States. So in 1964, he founded this oldest running club in Northern California, and that was your co-author, Jack Leidig. Well, he didn't found it. He came in as the president in Uh, 69. Yes, right. Right. Uh, Yeah, he he was president, and you said around... Yeah, 1970. So, yeah. Now, I was also interested in, you have a photograph of the world's fastest centenarian runner. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Larry Lewis. Yeah, and you're thinking, oh, somebody 80, that's that's an old runner. But this guy was running. Well, tell tell us who this was. Well, he was a legend in San Francisco. My dad was a deck officer in the Merchant Marine, so he sailed out of San Francisco. When I was a kid, he would tell us about how there's this waiter at this this fancy hotel that's 101 years old. It was Larry Lewis. And then when I was—the reason Larry Lewis is in distant finish is he's giving out awards to some young kids who road race. And I researched and found out his bio was pretty interesting. He was born on an Indian reservation— and he worked with the great Houdini. He was an assistant to Houdini for like 30 years. There's and, an indication right there of his oh, yeah. age. Yeah. That he was old enough to and have worked with Houdini. And then Larry Lewis apparently ran in um, Golden Gate Park six or seven miles every day of his life. And when he was like 100 years old, it's, it's in there. He ran like 17 seconds for the 100-yard dash. I mean, he was, he was in... Yeah, he's a legend in San Francisco. Well, I enjoyed... There's a photograph of him. Very nice-looking guy. And he um, was giving an award 
to a young eight-year-old marathoner. Yes. Well, my goodness, an eight-year-old marathoner? Yes. And her name happened to be Marietta Boitano. Yeah, she was great. And um, she did Pike's Peak Marathon, which is incredible. And when she was also, I don't know how old she is. It's in the book. She was like 10 or 12. She ran Pike's Peak. Yeah, she was a great runner. That, that is really. So what you had back then is you had whole families running like the Cortez family. There and there they had, some of them had held, held world or national age group records. So, My guest is uh, commander, historian, and former runner himself, David Brune. And he has written three books on competitive running in Northern California. And his latest is Distant Finish. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wiegman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio, and I'm back with my guest, avid track and field fan, David Brune. His book that we're talking about today, third in a trilogy, is Distant Finish. And we've been talking about some of the people who are featured in his book. So we we uh, mentioned this Olympic club formed in 1860 in uh, San Francisco, and then the club in uh, 1864, the West Valley Track Club, which was outstanding. And what about Chico? When did Chico get a running club? Well, Chico didn't get a running club until 1975. So what was interesting is the all the early, the hub of road racing in Northern California in the early 70s was San Francisco. They had lots of powerful clubs. They had the Redwood City Striders, um, the ones you mentioned. Uh, Walt Stack was leading the uh, South End Dolphin Club, another famous person. But uh, then you had clubs pop up around, basically around university and college towns, Sacramento, Davis, and Chico State's running club was founded in 1975, in the summer of 1975. Well, quite a number of years ago, I interviewed this gentleman who'd written a book. Uh, His name was Walt Schaefer. And at the time, I didn't know about his background in being an outstanding athlete himself, runner himself, but how he encouraged other people. And so I just pictured this uh, founding moment when Walt invites people over to his house in 1974, and some of the names of people that were there, I knew Chuck Sheely, you mentioned. I had met him because he was uh, an author. And Don Ritchie, I'd met because he was my dermatologist back years ago. And so Chuck Sheely and Don Ritchie and some other people met at Walt Schaefer's house. And Walt says, hey, let's let's form a running club. Yes, he, he had ran for Michigan. He was a miler and half miler, um, early 60s, got his Ph.D., Taught at the University of Oregon for a while before coming here, and while he was there, he ran with great, trained with great runners: Steve Prefontaine, Kenny Moore, Jim Ryan was there training for the '72 uh, Olympics, and Walt came up here, and he was involved in the summer. They had summer races, track and field meets, at Chico State, and uh, that's where I met him. I had just graduated from high school in '75, and in fact, he told me a story recently. He goes. Yeah, we had a three-mile race outside the stadium, and I beat you. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I, I tell a story in one of my books how in 76, uh, I was running for Butte College, and they had they were going to have this road race in it was either Yuba City or Marysville, the Peach Bowl 10, 10K. And all his buddies on the Chico Running Club, which were pretty much professors, doctors, professionals, they're all 
sure that he was going to beat me. <laughs> and they were opining that to me. And being a kid, I, of course, like, there's no way this old professor is going to beat me. I didn't know how good he was. You know, a few years ago, he showed me a, a uh, picture in his phone of reunion with his uh, teammates back at Michigan. But anyway, yeah, Walt was a great runner. And I don't know how many books he's written, but one of them was on stress, which is yes, quite famous. That was the book that I interviewed him on his stress as a, an expert on stress many years ago before I knew his background as an outstanding athlete himself. Yeah, I was cycling with him, I don't know, about a month ago. There's a cycling group in town. We were doing a 30-mile ride, but he told me when he was 80, he did 80 miles on his 80th, celebrated his 80th <laughs> birthday. So he's he's still really fit. And, yeah, uh, still and very enthusiastic. Yes. Yeah, passionate person. Yes. I love that. Now, there's a, a photograph on the cover of your book, and it's not until the very end of your book that we find out the story of this woman runner, because you have uh, runners on the front cover and back cover of your book. And so I found her story very interesting. Her name was Luann Park, and uh, the title of this section, Luann's Considerable Accomplishments. So what were her considerable accomplishments? Well, she's incredibly remarkable. She's in her early 60s now, and she's still training and competing. She was one of the Charlie's Angels, one of the girls that was on the second uh, Chico High cross-country team in 77, ranked second in the nation. But what's amazing about her— Now, repeat that. Second in the nation? Yeah, they ranked second in the nation by Harrier, Harrier Magazine. What's amazing about her, she was the North Section champion in the quarter mile, one lap around the track. So she has great leg speed. Then she goes to Butte College, and she sets school records in the 1,500 meters and 800 meters, equivalent of mile and half mile. And today she still holds one record and is number two in the other. Then she goes up to Oregon State on a both a track and soccer scholarship. And then she runs in the inaugural Women's Marathon Olympic Trials in 1984. She runs in the marathon. So she's gone from quarter-mile champion to being good enough to run in the Olympic trials in 1984 in the, in the marathon, USA track and field trials. Then she goes over, she qualifies for the Olympic trials in 88, but she doesn't do it because she does the Ironman triathlon in, in Hawaii in uh, 87 and 88. I think she was seventh or eighth among women in each race. You might refresh people. What does the Ironman consist of? Uh, the Ironman triathlon in uh, Hawaii is you swim about three miles in the open ocean, and then you cycle about 130 miles. Usually a lot of it's against the wind because you're right next to the ocean. And then you finish with running a complete marathon, 26 miles. So she did that in 87 and 88. And then she starts doing ultra marathoning, including Western States 100 milers, which if you finish in less than 24 hours, you get a coveted gold belt buckle. So yeah, you have a photograph of that. But I, I had intended to cover ultra marathoning more in this book. And um, in addition to her, there's also Dave and Jim Scott brothers who went to PV who are also ultramarathoners and have a bunch of Western states belt buckles. I intended to cover more in this book, but partially as a courtesy to Jack, since I was basically mining his body of work and writing the book, I wanted to cover Northern California road racing extensively. And so there wasn't really enough space to spend a lot of time on ultramarathoning. So. Maybe anyway, she's towards book. the end of the book, but her picture is on the cover along with with uh, Bill, Mad Dog, Scobie, <laughs> because I wanted to honor Luann. Well, he even looks <laughs> like a mad dog in that photograph. Now, um, Luann's photograph is on the cover, but it's also in this back section when you talk about right, uh, right. her. And I have a friend who was quite athletic when he was younger. And two things, when I told him I was going to be talking to you about this book, he asked, well, is Steve Prefontaine in the book? And so, of course, you have an index if people wonder about that. And right. I said, yep, Steve Prefontaine is listening. So he knew that name. And he said, and you know how Nike came up with these waffle soles on the shoes? And I said, yeah, but you might tell people about this photograph alongside Luann Park's photograph. Oh, Luann provided me a photo of her waffle trainers that are all wore out. They're ripped on the side. The soles are wore out. And that's that's basically back in the day. In those days, if you're a runner, you ran lots and lots of miles. And nowadays, I have a friend that's like, well, I get a new pair of running shoes every, I don't know, some periodicity doesn't even run. Well, back in those days, 
my running shoes, I would take athletic tape. When the sole started separating from the upper, <laughs> I would just put athletic tape around the, the entire front of the shoe to extend the miles. And so, I, you know, it's the same story with her. She obviously didn't have any money. So you're just, you're running, your, you're wearing your shoes until they don't, you know, can't put them on your feet anymore. But nowadays doctors will go, well, you have to change your shoes every 500 miles or 1,000 miles or well, what company came up with waffle sole shoes? Well, that Bill Bowerman, the great coach at Oregon, invented those in his waffle iron. And, and the the idea of the waffle shoe was to give you more cushion. So when you're running lots of miles, try to preserve your knees. And actually, they had a short-lived waffle shoe. I wish I would have kept these when I was running in college. They were so wide that when you would have your leg swing, they basically cut your calf. The bottom of the sole was sort of yeah, like an inverted yeah. V, and, the, and they were incredibly wide, and the idea was, okay, you get even more cushioning, but they were so wide, you would hit <laughs> your other leg with them, you know, as you, anyway. They didn't last very long. Well, uh, under the caption under the photograph of Luann in these shoes says, Luann Park Racing and her worn-out Nike Waffle Trainers. Right. And this name, Nike, everybody has seen this. Uh, the swoosh, swoosh yeah. that is the logo for Nike, and you see it everywhere. You watch tennis players all over the world, no matter what tennis tournament they're playing in, you can find a Nike uh, emblem on their clothes. And at this very moment, your shirt has that on yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> David. So Nike really, um, I think it's success, started yeah. with this this shoe. Yeah, and the reason it says waffle trainer, they also had racing shoes, of course. If, if you're a competitive runner back in the days, you had racing flats, you had training shoes, and you had spikes for track. So in fact, you racing, have photographs you, of those kind yeah, of shoes, yeah, you too. you lighter shoes. Yeah, yeah. Well, this book, I think, will be of interest to people uh, who live in this area, uh, not just the Chico area, but all of Northern California, because this was... Uh, I think maybe unexpected that so many outstanding world-class athletes came from Northern California. Well, it's interesting because they had a number of Colombians that were running for I remember that. University of Nevada yeah. Reno. Yeah, from the country of Colombia now. And I was thinking about that. It makes perfect sense. They're from the high mountains where it's cold. What's in Nevada? High mountains and it's cold. <laughs> In fact, one of them, Domingo Tibaniza, he was a four-time Olympian. I ran against him one time in a 5,000 meters at University of Nevada, which I hated because it's cold and I altitude. <laughs> My claim to fame is he didn't lap me, meaning he didn't finish the race, pass me on. Anyway, that was my claim to fame. But they also had some great British runners. And one of the interesting things I found about this book, I didn't purposely find race results with myself in there, but there are some results where I'm in there. I was a high school kid getting taken to races either by my high school coach or other adults who thought I should run somewhere. Yeah, but, so I think if people have maybe family members or people, friends who were racing at the time, because you reproduced the finishers, the top 40 or the top 30 uh, finishers in these various races, and it's it's right there. You can look down, oh, there's... Well, Uncle. the interesting part, um, which I was building up to, is that Pretty, you know, when you, when you ran for high school or college, you would know who your competitors were. When you went to road races, you basically just went somewhere and lined up on the starting line and ran. And so there was people from all over Northern California. And when you go in and look at these results, you can go, oh, wow, there were some really great people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ahead of me in that race. Or you can see that, you know, some of my teammates in college, I see the names of their parents. And so this book would have meaning Different meaning for different people, but if you ran in the 70s, you're going to find people you know in there. Probably you may find yourself in there, and if you didn't run in the 70s, one of the nice things about this is that it has information about all these various races, some that still exist, some that don't, clubs that existed. or So if you're in a community and you're interested in running, you go, wow, they used to run this race in this part of Berkeley. Maybe we should bring this race back, or they uh -huh. had this club. Maybe we should bring this club back. Yeah, so. And much more... I don't know if it's egalitarian is a word, but uh, women used to be, oh, women can't run, certainly can't run a marathon. And so I am pleased, and I think probably you are too, at how open these races are, that there's been an evolution in who was allowed to race. 
Well, we need to talk about some of the great local women who ran back then, <laughs> which we haven't got to. So one was Meryl Cray, yes, who, ran, who ran for Chico State back in the 70s. Um, she won the uh, Bidwell Classic Marathon. But one of the things that Jack Lydig did, he came up with these rankings. You had to have your races sanctioned, and he came up with these rankings, periodically published them. So at one point, she was number one among the women runners. Another runner is, of course, Jill Simmons. She was an All-American in 79. Um, they said in the North Cal Running Review they believe she was the first woman ever from the uh, Pacific AAU to break um, one hour for 10 miles. So that was over a rolling course. She had great success on the roads. And then Doug Averett's wife, who was a uh, Amy Harper. When Amy Harper, she was from the Bay Area, but when she was still in junior high, she was running for the San Jose Cinder Gals, which had the great Francie LaRue, one of the best female distance runner, multi-time Olympian. Anyway, and Amy used to get on a bus and go across San Jose to train with them. She's in here winning road races. And uh, anyway, so you had all these great athletes and Bob Darling's in here. He talks about he was an All-American at Chico State, how he got his nickname, The Rocket. Can I tell that story? <laughs> well, um, I want to leave people some surprises okay. right. in your book. Yeah. But there are some wonderful stories in your book. And uh, like you say, I think people will be interested to see family and friends in when they go through these lists because you reproduce these lists. You did so much research for well, this Well, I don't want book. people to think this is just a bunch of compiled lists. It, no, it's it, not. It has snippets of, like, the top finishers in races after the races are described. And the reason the snippets are in there because there are errors in the spelling of people's names. Like, there were some women, they had, like, three different variations of their first name. Like, uh, I want to be called this now, and I want to be called this now, and... And so what I wanted to do was just clip out the snippets and put them in so people couldn't say, well, you know, you spelled my name wrong if I reproduced <laughs> it because, you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think they'll find it very interesting. My guest has been retired Commander David Brune, who is a historian. His previous books have been on naval history, but his latest three books, a trilogy on competitive running in Northern California. And the first one was Toe the Mark about high school Chico High runners. The second was Stride Out, about runners at Chico State University. And her, his latest book, Distant Finish, I think people will find these books very interesting for all sorts of reasons they probably didn't even anticipate. So thank you, David. Thank you. After a break, I'll be talking to local author Steve Metzger, who is going to offer tips for writing. His book is The Writer's Way. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. My next guest is not only a prolific writer himself, but has taught writing at Chico State University and Butte College. Over the years, Steve Metzger has taught freshman composition, creative writing, Native American literature, playwriting, fiction writing, and American studies. In the journalism department, he taught travel writing, news writing, and magazine writing. Steve Metzger started freelancing in 1982 and has written at least 100 articles for in-flight magazines, travel magazines, skiing magazines, travel sections of national newspapers, many articles for the San Francisco Chronicle and for the Chico State Alumni Magazine. 
He wrote around 300 stories for the Chico News and Review, including food columns under the name Henri Bouride. Today I'm going to ask Steve Metzger about The Writer's Way, a book he co-authored with former office mate at Chico State, Jay Rollins. Steve Metzger, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Now, your book, The Writer's Way, I thought would be of interest to uh, people who are listening who might have an idea that, ooh, I think I would like to write a book myself or whatever writing they want to do. So I think it would be interesting for them to hear how you got the idea that maybe you could be a writer. I've actually always always wanted to write, but I never thought I could do anything with it. Um, so this is from the book. Um, when I was a sophomore in college, I took a beginning creative writing class from Dr. Clark Brown, who I also played softball with with Jay Rollins. A highly regarded author, in addition to having published countless essays and short stories, he had actually published a novel, which I had finished by about the third week of class. I was in awe taking a writing class from a real novelist. By mid-semester, we had submitted several pieces of work, and he had returned mine with mildly encouraging comments. After class one day, I gathered up the courage to take his book, The Disciple, up to the lectern at which he was standing and ask him to sign it, which he did, graciously, before handing it back. As I walked down the hall afterward, I opened the book to the page he had signed, and there it was, scrawled beneath the title, but clear as day, Steve, be a writer. I was ecstatic. The novelist had recognized the student's talent. It fueled the fire. From then on, I could hardly keep from writing. I wrote and wrote and wrote. It was largely why I became a professional writer. For more than 20 years, I kept that book on a prominent shelf in our living room and brought it down from time to time to show friends. See, Clark Brown told me I should be a writer way back then, except for one minor problem. A couple of years ago, I took the book down and looked at it again, at the inscription, looked hard and closely from every, every angle. Oh, no, it didn't say be a writer. It said best wishes. I was crushed. Brown hadn't been inscribing the book in response to any talent he had seen in me. It was just a generic inscription. But you know what? Because I thought it said be a writer and because I thought Brown had written it to encourage me to continue writing, I did. And frankly, that little misreading at an impressionable age and time in my life played a huge role in how I saw and defined myself in fact, had I not had an image in my head of myself as a writer, I'd most likely be pounding nails this very moment instead of sitting at a computer keyboard talking to you about how to become a better writer. Yeah. And I told him that story one time, and he laughed so hard. <laughs> I can imagine. This is Steve Metzger talking about how he believed in himself and became a writer. Now, I mentioned that uh, people listening... Because there are a lot of really good writers right here in Chico. There are. Yeah. And I think some of them who maybe haven't written a book yet would appreciate some tips from you, Steve. So you have a chapter on what is personal writing, because I think that's what most people know if they were going to write a book. So if somebody wants to write uh, about themselves, what recommendations do you have for them? Well, it's, it's tricky because... Um, like the, they say in this chapter, it's both the easiest and the hardest kind of writing to do. It's easy because they say, you know, write what you know. But it's hard because you, you want other people to care about it. And it's really easy for people not to care about what you care about. So <clears throat> I think the thing is you have to universalize it somehow. Um, so it becomes bigger, bigger than the thing. So as I say here, the, uh, the paper about divorce or the paper about your kids or the paper about your Little League experience needs to be bigger than that. It needs to, the, the paper about Little League needs to be about growing up. It can't be just about that day. So somehow you need to connect the, the specific to the, to the bigger picture. And that's, that's hard. You give the example, in fact, of uh, Over the Rainbow about this young girl who, all these strange characters that she meets along the way. And uh, you say we should, uh, Paint a bigger picture than just what happened. I think that's a great example. In fact, I'll read that little couple of okay. sentences here. Consider a film we've all seen, The Wizard of Oz, the story of an adolescent girl who runs away from home, or dreams she does, gets trans transported by tornado to a distant land, meets some weird characters, and then ends up back at home. I don't know about you, but I've never met a talking scarecrow, tin man, <laughs> or lion, let alone a witch or flying monkeys, nor am I, am I an adolescent girl. So why do I, in fact, why does almost everyone relate 
to Dorothy's story because, of course, there's a bigger picture. Haven't we all felt at one time or another that people don't understand us? Haven't we all come to realize at some time or another that we've been looking so hard for, uh, looking so hard for is right in our, what we've been looking so hard for is right in our own backyard? So it, it becomes something bigger there. And I found that when I reread something that I read as a younger person, that I just followed what happened. And then when I reread it, I see that bigger picture that you're talking about. I say, oh, this is really about something bigger that I didn't the first time I read it as a younger person. Right. And it, then the next time it might be about a different bigger picture. Well, somebody recently mentioned that about a movie, that when you're watching a movie, you want to care about the characters in the movie. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, any other tips then for somebody who wants to write their personal story? Well, well this is just more about writing in general. And I think I'm a, a little different kind of writer that way. I always treated it as a job. I, I never wrote on weekends, um, never got up early and wrote, never wrote after dinner. Um, I treated it like going to work. And I made sure I worked every day and, and got work done every day. Um, but um, I just found myself trying to put one foot in front of the other. And even if I knew what I wrote, I wouldn't end up keeping. At least I had something there. And I guess it's because of all the, all the jobs I had as a kid and as an adult. That I just treated it like a job and, and um, tried to get it done. Well, this chapter on personal writing, and I mentioned that to somebody who could be a really good writer. I've seen small and saying, you know, why don't you take up some writing, read Steve's book? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, no, I'm, I'm too old to do that. But I think that people who do personal writing might think they're writing it for themselves, but they've got family, grandchildren who may not exactly. today be interested. But right. I'm always so grateful when some older person writes down a personal writing right. that other family members get, oh, I'm so glad granddad wrote that. Right. Well, and that comes back to one of the most important concepts in the book, and that's knowing your audience. Yes. Um, which, you know, in fact, I tell my students that the answer to every question about writing is it depends. You know, mm -hmm. ask me this, ask me that. It, can I use the F word? Well, it depends. Who's your audience? You know, uh, do I have to define what uh, the one-mile pool is? It depends on who your audience is. So when an, someone, like you say, older wants to write a journal, that's, that's writing for himself. But as soon as he's writing for his family, then everything falls into place. He knows what he has to define, what he doesn't, what level of formality he can get away with or can't. Well, and you say that uh, the answer to all questions about writing is it depends on the audience and the purpose. Purpose, exactly. Yeah. What are you trying to do here? What's your, what's your point? Yeah, yeah. My guest is Steve Metzger, and she, he has taught writing for years, all various kinds of writing. And the book that we're talking about today is called The Writer's Way. And you taught at Chico State, and you taught at Butte College, and meanwhile, you're freelance writing, and I'm amazed how much writing you have done. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, you um, make a distinction in your book, abstractions and concretions. So you say um, that we should be more specific when we can, instead of just speaking abstractly. So what are some examples of how we might do that? Okay. To be more um, concrete instead of abstract. Uh, this is under a section called uh, substitute examples. So a weak sentence would be, with Google, you can find anything you want. Better. With Google, you can find the capital of Borneo or a recipe for jambalaya or a golden retriever breeder in Detroit or Buster Posey's high school batting average. <laughs> uh, weak. You can use Google Maps to get directions from point A to point B. Stronger, you can use Google Maps to get directions from Boulder to Burning Man, which is a reference to an Emmy Lou Harris song that I don't think too many people got, <laughs> or from your house to the closest Macy's. Um, weak, you can use Google to look up the definition of any word. Stronger, you can use Google to look up the definition of basorexia, which I just <laughs> did. Weak, with Google, it's easy to get distracted and end up all over the place. Stronger. With Google, it's easy to get distracted. One minute you're working on your paper for your American history class, and the next you're reading about Borneo or Jambalaya or Golden Retrievers or Buster Posey or Burning Man or looking up weird words like basorexia. And what's interesting, my students 
started off the semester, they would say that's a wordy sentence. But actually, the wordy sentence is the one above it that doesn't get any work done. That's a wordy <laughs> sentence because no work gets done. So the, the sentence that's six times as long is, is not wordy. Well, you know, kind of one of my pet peeves is trying to use a bunch of syllables. Like simplistic is, must be better than simple. Right. And I prefer simple. <laughs> right. You give examples in your book, too, of student essays that I think, wow, a college student wrote this? I'm, I'm so impressed. Yeah, there's some good writing in there. That's the, I think the, one of the strong points of this book, and that was Jay's yeah. initial uh, vision for it, was to have lots of, of not only good writing but good student writing. And uh, that you read it and you think, well, this, this essay breaks all the rules. Because when I took freshman composition, there were rules. Right. And uh, you also uh, say uh, you have a section called Substitute Examples. Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing there. It's just it's being specific and instead of using the abstractions. Mm -hmm. Well, if you studied other languages that have, like Latin, where you have a, a, the subject and you have the object, uh, or even Sanskrit has three they're singular, dual, and plural. Hmm. Some languages have genders, masculine and feminine, or masculine and feminine and neuter. So if you've studied, I think it's helpful to study foreign languages because then you get an idea, oh, that's how who and whom works. Right, exactly. Well, it's also interesting to study foreign languages because you see the connections between those and ours. Oh, yeah. When you see the roots oh, of, yeah. of the words, whether they're Germanic or Latinate, which most of them are. And most colleges used to require foreign language. Right. Right. But students said, nah, we don't want that. <laughs> okay, so what is your uh, advice on who and whom? Oh, okay. Uh, this is my f kind of my favorite part of the book. And <laughs> it, it, partly because it shows that I don't, I take myself seriously, but the book is also fun. This so, is on page 179, yeah. by the way, Steve. So this is called A Final Word on Who and Whom. Trust me here. When in doubt, use who instead of whom since whom when it should be who sounds way worse than who when it should be whom. Examples. This is my brother whom loves to fish. <laughs> does that sound stupid or what? wrong? And it, it sounds does. really stupid. Here's another one. There are many people who I would love to invite to the party. Wrong, but it doesn't sound quite so bad. Also wrong, but doesn't sound so bad. Plus, it's likely you'll have more people at your party if you don't use the word whom around them. I think kind of a criteria, too, does it give pause? Does it make you stop and, ah. Right. And so if, like that one you gave, even though it's grammatically not correct, you, it doesn't stop you and distract you from the rest of the sentence. Yeah. Well, you have written so many books, and I would love to talk to you about some of your other books, but do you have any concluding remarks on this particular book, Steve? Um. I guess the, the advice that I, I, I like to give, the, I think this is the most useful, is when you're writing, if, you think, if you're thinking about throwing something out, throw it out. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in fact, can I quote the Elmore Leonard yes. piece? Just coincidentally, <laughs> uh, reading, we do the uh, celebrity cipher every day in the ER. We'd love to, to, to decode those. And just coincidentally, today was an Elmore Leonard quote, the most important piece of advice when, you're, when you write, try to leave out all the parts that readers would skip. <laughs> that great? It is great. And I think that's good parting advice, Steve. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. The book Steve and I have been talking about is The Writer's Way. Uh, he's been telling us about what's in it, but he also has acknowledged his co-author, Jay Rollins. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Nancy. I would also like to thank my first guest, retired commander David Brune, who writes books about competitive running. He has written three, and the third is Distant Finish. And next we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. Wildflower. If you sought to buy something as intricate and lovely as Lupin, you would pay substantially for its purchase. So why not simply enjoy the flowers of the fields? But ah, you might say, such beauty is fleeting. And so it is. But it also always returns, at least if we protect its place. Is this true of every loss we suffer? If we keep an open heart, 
will what we have lost in some way come to us again. Amy Gaffney Fixed on Eros. It started like any other Saturday night. I was drinking in the bar, dancing with the ladies, fighting with the boyfriends, and drinking moss. When La Macera broke a bottle over my head and four gigantes hombres threw me out the door, I began to feel unwanted. Sure, I was drunk, but not so drunk I couldn't crawl to my pickup, and after several minor accidents, I was driving down the dark, lonely road, wind through the open windows, singing long to the country radio, AM. All of a sudden, flashing red-blue lights coming up behind. It approached fast, but then passed, flew right on by. Yes, flying, but silent, weird, unearthly, like some strange glowing craft from another world. It zoomed ahead, disappeared. I rounded a curve, then there it was again, now stationary, blocking the road. There was no choice. I had to stop. I bailed out of the truck to run, but it was instantly as if I froze into the spot. I couldn't move. It was then I sensed beings, fuzzy in the craft's unworldly glow. They approached. I was so afraid. Big eyes, pointy heads. There was nothing I could do. Standing before me, from somewhere one drew a weapon, like some dirty hairy from another world, thrust it in my mouth, ordered, breathe. You can be sure, I breathed. A screen on the gun lit up, flashing red, point three two. The creature looked into my eyes and mind. He scolded, it's not nice to drink and drive. He pointed a long, skinny finger toward my truck, and it blew up. It blew up. In the morning, I awoke in a ditch beside the road. Beer cans, debris were scattered everywhere. My truck lay on its side, burned and broken. There was a sickness in my stomach, a pain in my head, and I knew I would never drink again. Now at night, when I walk beneath the grand sky, I feel the stars are watching me. The noise inside my head is the voice of the moon, and I wait for Los Extranjeros to return. I'm Mike McMillan. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.